it makes sense that as a thinker, he would get the Quran and he would... like this is so anti-intellectual this is like against everything that i'm that i'm about <laughs> like remember i was a person who was supposed to be an english professor and now i'm doing like doc review or whatever and you know and like working on like large pharma company litigation so i was just like i i have to go sure so my name is asma yudin i am the author of the recently released book uh, called When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. How did it feel to have Khalid Beydoun, Keith Ellison, Hamza Youssef showing such acclaim for your book? So I think I'm just really excited, uh, not so much because of any sort of celebrity culture, because I'm not somebody who's really into that, um, but more, more because these people reflect an incredible and time to write stark diversity in the positions they take on other matters, right? So I think Khalid Beydoun is best known as somebody who's very much on the left, as he's a critical race theorist. He has a very different perspective on the world and on politics and uh, the place of Muslims in it than compared to, you know, Yusuf. He's a traditional Islamic scholar and um, politically conservative. And so, I think these are really important. Of course, Keith Ellison is also a progressive politician, uh, leans more in the Khalid Beydoun direction. But especially the fact that I did talk about conservative political interests as something worthy of, some, of, of serious attention and not something to be minimized. I talk about that in the book, and it was a pleasure to be able to engage in a really long conversation with Keith Ellison and see that he had the openness and the support for, for, my, for my inquiry. And, the, the sort of the argument that I'm putting forward as opposed to sort of shutting himself down and, and going into the sort of politically polarized positions. And honestly, this trend of kind of getting people from both sides of the, of the divide and bringing them together um, is something that you see even on the cover of my book. I have a Tom Jelton, the religion and belief correspondent from National Public Radio, who's on there. And, he's, and the part of his quote that we, we featured on the cover says, prejudice cannot survive for testimony. And it really kind of ties into the, the type of sentiments that people would have when they're really kind of concerned about Muslims as a minority. Um, and there's a certain segment of the, the U.S. demographic that leads in that direction. But then there's another demographic that says, well, we're tired of hearing about Muslims and their rights. And, um, you know, what about Christians? And what about the rest of us? And for those people, I have Senator Hatch on there, uh, a well-known conservative. He was in the U.S. Senate for 42 years and only just recently retired. He is the former president of the United States Senate and is behind a lot of really amazing religious freedom legislation, but indisputably a conservative. And so I thought it was important to show to those who are just simply glancing at the cover of the book that, hey, look, this isn't your typical, typical book about Muslims' rights. There's something different going on here. And if you open it, if you look at the, the inside uh, front flap, it has a quote by Rod Dreher, who is also a very public conservative Christian, who is also the, the author of the best-selling book, uh, The Benedict Option, which is about Christians feeling persecuted and what their options are in the modern-day America. And he has a quote in there saying, this is a must-read for conservative Christians. And so once again, I'm hoping that people will see that, the people who might not otherwise pick up a book on Islamophobia will see those endorsements and say, hey, this is something different. I might be interested in reading this.
What really struck me about you and this book is that you're not someone who's simply or exclusively pursuing religious liberty for Muslims, but for every religious group. And I think too often, I mean, even now, somebody was like, um, I think Khalid Beethoven had retweeted my tweet of his endorsement, and uh, so somebody responded to that was just like, oh, once we get, once again, defend the Muslims' rights, and what, what about the other people? And the type of things that I really made addressed up front in the introduction of my book, just so that we can move on then. Um, but I think that that is, there's sort of like a type of fatigue that sort of set in with many Americans where they're not so much in, in an isolation opposed to Muslims' rights, but when it becomes a situation when that is all they hear, or mostly what they hear, and they also feel a sense of persecution on behalf of their own religious beliefs, they kind of become resentful, and that leads to a lot of hostility against Muslims then. Um, and so, I, understanding some of these drivers and the way that these are interconnected, I try to address that up front. And of course, the very sort of simple fact that the way that our jurisprudence, the way human rights are set up, is that you can't create these exceptions for Muslims because you don't like them, and then think that that's not going to come back to hurt you. That's just not how human rights work. So, up until, you know, this conversation, how many conversations, how many engagements, speaking engagements, talk shows have you had to do for this book? It's been pretty constant. I have been doing radio interviews since the beginning of June. Um, and my first speaking engagement related to the book was in at the end of April. <laughs> so even that's actually the, uh, the trip where I ended up hanging out with Keith Ellison. So unfortunately, I didn't have a copy of the book to be in the picture with us, but I did send him one later. And so I've been doing that since April. Of course, since the book has come out, it's really kind of revved up. I have, at this point, coverage in the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times. The New York Times was a couple of pieces that I wrote, but the Washington Post published its book review. Yesterday, The Economist came out with its review. Um, I have had an excerpt published in Teen Vogue. I've had uh, a piece in The American Conservative. I have something coming out in Christianity Today. I've been with the Council on American Relations. Catholic news service, religion news service. So there's just been like a wide array of coverage and it's had a really incredible events as well. Um, so far I've been at Politics and Prose in DC, which is perhaps the most coveted spot uh, for your book launch. And then that talk was actually been chosen as a podcast on Slate. Um, I have been at New America. I've been at Books Are Magic in, in Brooklyn. I was in the John Fugelsang show on Sirius XM uh, in New York City. I, it's in private events in Chicago. I'm going to be at Uncle Bobby's bookstore next week. And today, uh, this is my fifth interview, just today. And so it's pretty ongoing. I have a lot more events coming up. It's really going to pick up once the school year picks up uh, and once DC becomes less sleepy, as it is in summer. So I'm looking forward to it. I see it all as an opportunity to engage, to be able to have these, these conversations that honestly, I didn't see ha happening. Um, and I definitely didn't see happening from like a Muslim perspective, but just like a Muslim person being like, yes, I am here to advocate for everyone's rights. And I'm, I'm here also not to talk about the rights of marginalized minorities in some sort of way that it should be sort of privileged over the rights of other people. But yes, the, the rights of my marginalized minorities needs attention. Um, it's an urgent question of, of human rights, but I think we also need to look at everybody else's rights and I don't want this to be some sort of competition between rights. And I think that perspective has just been sorely lacking, and that is what led to my writing the book in the first place. And so I'm really looking forward to 
the, the ongoing opportunities to engage with audiences around this topic. I even remember Ayanna Presley when she was at Netroots Nation in Philadelphia, she was saying how now is not the time for any scarcity mindset with regard to our rights. Um, it's not an oppression Olympics. This, this is not the time to be territorial about, well, you're focusing on issues at the border. What about mass incarceration? She was saying basically our destinies and our freedoms are tied. Um, and so if we commit injustice against any one group necessarily it compromises the rights of other groups well what i notice about some of the people making this argument is that they very sort of um the way that it is made and the, and the groups that are added into the sort of list of people whose rights have to be protected are inevitably people who are sort of seen as minorities or people with less power um and so what I say is if you really want a truly coherent vision of rights, you have to also consider the rights of who you th of the people you think are the majority, right? And I think there's a lot of, on the one hand, sense of persecution on, the beha on behalf of white Christians about like, well, they, they feel under assault. But then there's also this phenomenon of everyone else pretty much either being confused or outright mocking that, being like, really, I really just don't get it. Like, why do you feel persecuted? And, and is this, this is really just your what you're feeling because you've lost entitlement, right? Um, you've lost dominance and now you feel bad and now you're, and you think that feeling bad is actually persecution. Um, and I, I think it's, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I'm not saying that persecution is necessarily the best term for evangelicals to be using right now, because I think that it overlooks a long history and uh, concrete forms of persecution that minorities do face. And I think that appropriation of that language is problematic um, but that's not to say that whatever they're feeling isn't real. Um, and I think that maybe if we had a little more openness to what other people are feeling, then maybe we can get past our polarized discourse. You are the founding editor-in-chief of altmuslima.com, a producer and advisor for the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docuseries The Secret Life of Muslims. You've also written for The New York Times, Teen Vogue, The Washington Post, Newsweek, refinery 29 and religion news service so with all of that um i'm wondering has there been or was there a specific event that catalyzed your being in this field of pursuing religious liberty for all and becoming such a public voice for this issue yeah, so I mean, I can't say that I really had this concerted plan as I was growing up that I was going to become a constitutional lawyer or a religious freedom lawyer. I'm not even sure I knew a religious freedom lawyer was like a thing that you can do. I just, you know, for, I mean, my reasons for going to law school are not anything deep and introspectful. Like, it was really just like, I wanted to become an English professor, actually. Um, I love literature and I love teaching. And I love writing, um, and so I thought that that was the sort of thing that people always thought of me as. Um, and but then after kind of researching what that's like, and kind of you know reading the Kaplan graduate uh, advisor book, where it was pretty stark in terms of laying out the realities of what it's like to get your PhD, and if your advisor doesn't like you, the very politicking aspect of this could deprive you of your degree, and 
et cetera, et cetera. And so I was just like, well, that's not for me. Moving on. Um, I guess I wasn't really dedicated to it to begin with. Um, <laughs> and so I picked up the, the Kaplan uh, book on law school. And it, again, started off with a very bleak picture. You realize that lots of people with law degrees are waiting tables right now. Um, but it was, it was just, but it was, it did have like a path out. It was just like, well, if you, if you get into a really great law school, then, then the opportunities open up. And so I was like, okay, this seems doable. And I really like the element of logic and argumentation, um, in the law. So I decided I was going to go to law school. And, you know, there was this Atlantic monthly article I read a couple years ago that was talking about people who do really well in school and undergrad and do really well in the LSAT. Then they get into great law schools. They're like, oh, what the heck, I'll go. And that's basically me. That was my story. So when I read that article, I was like, oh, there are other people like me who just kind of went to graduate school and made life decisions based on like total apathy. Um, and so I went to law school and then the University of Chicago Law School, which, you know, in retrospect was just like a great place to be when I was there. Um, you know, Barack Obama was walking our halls. Uh, Cass Sunstein was there. These are, you know, Samantha Powers, people who are in the Obama administration. Philip Hamburger, who is like one of the, the major scholars of uh, religion and law that I was able to study with. And lo and behold, I'm doing religion and law. You know, Jeff Stone, I mean, just like really big names um, in the, the field of law were all at Chicago when I was there. And um, so, you know, and, and a lot of University of Chicago grads get recruited by large law firms and then they go on, they do that. And so that's what happened with me. I was recruited and I went to a large law firm. But, you know, a couple years into doing corporate litigation, I was just like, this is so anti-intellectual. This is like against everything that I'm that I'm about. <laughs> like, remember, I was a person who was supposed to be an English professor. And now I'm doing like doc review or whatever. Um, and, you know, and like working on like large pharma company litigation. Um, and so I was just like, I, I have to go. Like, and there were a couple of intervening life events that happened as well. Soon after I graduated from law school, my father passed away. He was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and then passed away four months after his diagnosis. The same week that he passed away, I also found out that I was pregnant with my first child. Um, and, and she was born, um, you know, my, my first year. Well, I guess that was my second year practicing law uh, at a corporate firm. And so I just, there were, and then I also got married. So I got married a month after my father, uh, my father was diagnosed and then he passed away three months after I got married. And so there was all this like crazy personal life things that were happening. And so I, not only was I made aware of the shortness of life because my father died at a very young age, but also um, the fact that I, I was leaving my daughter every day to go do something I hated. I don't really see the point of this other than the fat check. So at the behest of Skype, I have to interrupt this broadcast every 15 minutes at 15 minute intervals to remind you that the software used for this conversation is brought to you by Skype. Uh, I should also mention that Scivio seeks to undermine the status quo and render the pursuit of higher ed equitable for all. Or at least it once did.
how do you discover that about which you're passionate? And can you have co-passions? Is that really possible? Maybe it is because you can have more than one passion that you're pursuing or, or would like to pursue. And the reason there's that multiplicity, that plurality, is because each of those passions reflects the same underlying affinity that you have towards something. Um, so this interruption became a bit more stream of consciousness. Um, initially, it started out as the fulfillment <laughs> of a of a legal, technically, order. Then it changed to, well, I should plug Skivio if I have to plug Skype. And then it evolved into this deeper, almost existential, if not directly existential, question about how does one decide what to pursue? Which honestly, this is coming full circle because is that not the purpose of Skivio Radio, right? I've interviewed people from a range of backgrounds and you find that I consistently ask about whether the path they're currently on was one they imagined they would embark upon, right? If this path that they're on now, is it something that they knew from a young age, from earlier in life, from whatever point, whatever previous point that they were being called to, right? <laughs> if we're going to invoke a sense of destiny, or is it really just the reflection of their wanting to change, right? There's nothing deeper. It wasn't um, from a historical or, or childhood, you know, fantasy about what, what I want to be, you know, before I'm 30, because apparently, uh, there's a deadline that's, that's quite ageist, right? You know, uh, how many authors and writers only wrote their first book, you know, at, when they were 50 or 60 in their fifties, in their sixties, right? how many great things were accomplished by humankind from people who were in middle age or older. So I honestly don't know where this deadline comes from. Thank you for sticking with me through yet another digression. And I return you back to my programming and this conversation. And follow Skivio on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Facebook, Skivio isn't active, so you can follow us there as well. But um, there, it would only be a show of support. <laughs> it wouldn't be to receive any information um, or content or resources, because I'm very big on that. Um, and so... I decided that I needed to move on. And as I was kind of thinking about, that was finally the moment that I had, that my, mo my moment of reckoning, right? Like I didn't do it when I was applying to grad school. I didn't do it when I was applying for, like I just kind of got swept along. 
But finally, that moment has to come. It comes to to people at some point or the other. And and if you don't sort of take it seriously, you end up stuck in a career that you hate, right? And so that moment came for me for about two and a half years to three years um, into doing commercial litigation. I was like, I just need to get out of this. And so what is it that has motivated me in the deepest way? And and, and if, you, if you trace it, it's always been religion and interested in religion interested in interest in Islam, but also religion broadly. Um, and so I was like, the place where religion meets law is religious freedom. And so I sought out a firm, at the time the only firm in the United States, where it was diverse, religiously diverse attorneys defending religiously diverse clients and doing it from the perspective of religion being a public good, as opposed to being something that needs to be shut out from the public space. I even remember a previous guest, and I was at Princeton around the same time she was, because she graduated in 2013 and me two years later, but she was saying how when she was in high school, she was very complacent um, and was happy being a big fish in a small pond, you know, those were her words, Um, but then her father received a diagnosis, and that woke her up and shook her out of that complacency and so junior and senior year of high school she switched from regular classes to all ap classes um or ap and ib classes and it's interesting because it reminds me of your story and that you know she was thrown out of her comfort zone like it just lit a fire underneath her but in your case you were like why am i waking up every day it was a comfort zone in a different sense. It's like, why am I waking up every day to do work that I'm not even passionate about? And so I find that uh, an interesting comparison. Like, on the one hand, being happy where you are, but then something triggers your wanting more from life. And then on the other hand, not being happy where you are and... I guess that's more common, right? That being the impetus that drives you to pursue something greater. Right. And, you know, I'm great. You know, I'm obviously it's impacted my life in a lot of really bad ways to have lost my father. Um, And I write about that in the book. Um, But of course, I think that 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 reckoning, I'm not sure if that reckoning would have happened at least in the same way that it did happen for me if I wasn't going through all this major upheaval in my life. But again, I mean, even the fact of having children, I think, and I'm also just grateful for the opportunity for to be in a relationship, for instance, where my husband can say, yeah, you can go pursue your dreams and be creative and not be so tied down um, by the paycheck because that was a very significant pay cut that I took um, when I came out to work at a nonprofit law firm, as you can imagine. Um, so I think I'm also just grateful about the various sort of personal aspects of my life that allow me to be able to do these things. So you saw how dismal the statistics are regarding, you know, becoming, um, reaching professordom in, in the field of English. And so that's what propelled you towards law. And I'm wondering the apathy you had towards, apathy for lack of a better word, you had towards um, English, pursuing English, you know, to the point of becoming a professor, would you say that's something that was more prevalent throughout your life or just specific to that uh, 
potential career path. apathetic I'm not maybe that's not the right word I think because a lot of times when you're growing up right it's like if you the way people sort of attach your future like you know professional occupation (laughs) onto you is like kind of superficial right like you like to help people you should be a doctor you know or you like to write you should be a journalist um and stuff like that and so I think that a part of it was just like just that sort of basic level thinking where it was like I mean I, I really did excel in English. I was chosen as like the best English student in all of my entire high school, and like the and just like one of the best, you know, the best in, in my my college. I even got the the award for like the best humanities student out of the College of Arts and Sciences. And it was just something that it was like clearly I love writing. I love thinking through these ideas. But it, it, but I think really instead it, it wasn't just so much the, the writing part of it, but I think it was the thinking through and presenting arguments, and ultimately that did tie into law, but I think it was just sort of that simplistic one, one-to-one one type thinking, where I was just like, love English, become an English professor. Funny thing is that in many ways, I feel like I've come full circle, and no, I'm not an English professor, but um, I love to teach, right? So I have taught a course at a law school, I have done seminars, I love public speaking, a lot of my public speaking, when I engage with these audiences, is a form of my teaching, right? And so, you know, I think about what I do now. I mean, I ultimately came in t- to the point where I'm writing a book, right? And hopefully this is not my my last book. Um, I do plan on writing more and I write tons of op-eds. I write long articles. I I run a web magazine. And so there's like my, my that inner English professor is like still there. Um, but I think what I'm really grateful for is that not having gone down the humanities path and, and you know, sort of taking that very that particular pathway to to writing and teaching and thinking through arguments, um, I did have the opportunity to kind of have like a real world component. And so that was the other part of it that actually kind of made me move away from the English professor route was like, I'm not really sure I'm so much the person who can always just sit in the ivory tower. Like, I feel like I need like a, like a real world on the ground component to my life. Um, that was another element, I think, that kind of just made me sort of change paths and get to, to law school instead. And I'm grateful that I have been able to develop that sort of expertise and have that experience. So now, even though I'm still writing and teaching, I'm writing about very real world, concrete things um, and able to engage in issues that are actually a part of our, our national discourse and our national headlines on an almost daily basis. It's interesting because that public speaking is how you rerouted back to your original passion to teach um, because it's the vehicle or one of the vehicles by which you educate the public about this issue um, but I remember at the beginning of your book you were saying you were invited to speak at the Museum of the Bible in Washington DC and you got this comment or question doesn't Islam believe in Sharia law and the oppression of women? Why should we protect Muslims? What are Muslims doing to protect Christians? And I know, you know, already in this conversation, we've established that <laughs> you can't pick and choose which religious group you grant rights to because it quickly falls apart um, when you do that religious liberty but i'm wondering how often would you say you get trolled right like how often do you receive this criticism or criticism generally 
So the frequency, I think, is is pretty free. I mean, it's pretty frequent. Um, although I think that like people are just like, oh, you've probably gotten that question before. And I'm like, I don't think you ever get used to it. Like, and it's always framed in a particular way. And it depends on how it's delivered, and you kind of just have to sort of think on your feet. Um, you, but anytime that a conversation becomes about Muslims and religious freedom, which happened prior to this book, but definitely with the book, it puts me front and center, like into that space, right? And I, and I kind of thought of that when I was writing it, because I was like, oh great, like am I gonna have to do all that Islamophobia stuff, which requires, I mean, the way that I function is I just feel like I need to have, you know, really logical, fact-based answers for like everything, right? And so I was just like, wow, that's just gonna be like a huge like learning curve for me to learn all those talking points. Um, but I think that what distinguishes my work from the work of other people that, that do have to memorize all those talking points is um, that I'm talking about rights, right? I'm talking about constitutional rights and I talk about the right to be wrong. And, I, and essentially what the right to be wrong means, you can think I'm totally wrong. You can think that my, that my beliefs are offensive or that you just don't understand them. You can completely despise my religion, um, but that none of that matters when it comes to the question of our rights. Right, and so I'm not trying to win hearts and minds really. I mean, I kind of am because I feel like we need to do better at understanding each other and we really cannot get past this like deep, deep polarization that we're in state of our, our, just our society right now. If we don't sort of make more effort to learn about each other, but ultimately you don't really need to know anything about Islam for just to be like, just to stop yourself from interfering in the rights and to understand the, the importance of extending rights in a coherent way. Um, and so I think that, you know, I'll entertain those questions to some degree. And So at the behest of Skype, I have to interrupt this broadcast every 15 minutes at 15 minute intervals to remind you that the software used for this conversation is brought to you by Skype. Uh, I should also mention that Scivio seeks to undermine the status quo and render the pursuit of higher ed equitable for all. Um, you know, try to explain what Sharia is, and I do that in the book as well, and, and Islam and Muslim uh, and women and the typical sort of stuff. Um, but ultimately I'll be like, that's my explanation. You can agree, you can disagree, you can like me, you can not like me. But at the end of the day, it's pretty irrelevant because I still get my right. You're not trying to win over people. You're trying to establish the, the basis that just because you don't like a certain religion doesn't necessarily deprive, doesn't necessarily deprive me of the rights afforded to me because I follow a religion. I mean, in some ways you can say that what I'm really trying to win people over it to is a deep appreciation for the U.S. Constitution and our founding ideals. And I do think, you know, having worked internationally as well, that the U.S. Constitutional Framework is the most robust in terms of um, protections for religious freedom and free speech compared to anywhere else in the world. Um, and so I'm just like, and, and conservatives just love the U.S. Constitution. It's like a second Bible. Um, and so I'm just like, this, this Constitution, this is what we are allegiances to, right? Like, this is the, the ideals that you that you hold in high esteem. 
And so my argument is about the Constitution. It's not about Muslims, it's about the Constitution. Um, and that is something that hopefully we can all agree on. So one of the things that may strike someone uh, reading this book is you mention that the Founding Fathers intentionally, deliberately sought to secure the rights of the religious rights of Muslims. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, even Jefferson bought a Quran. I'm wondering when you learned about this, when you first learned about this, what was going through your mind? Yeah, I mean, so they, even though they were unaware of the existence of Muslims in the U.S., simply by fact, the facts of slavery, uh, sort of rendered these people invisible. They were statesmen, right? And they were interacting with Muslim statesmen, right? Like the Muslim rulers and Muslim-majority states. I mean, it was like, you know, like the empire. And so, you know, so at that level of sort of power broking and a high level of diplomacy, like they were very much interacting with Muslims. And so we weren't like some, you know, just a total phantom. Uh, they knew these people existed and they were very powerful at the time. And so I think that definitely informed the, the extent to which this vision was, was drawn out. But with the fundamental point being that in coming up with this vision of America as a place where Muslims, among many other groups, had a place in America, it was just sort of like, yeah, these people who are different. I mean, we know them and we, and we see them as different, but we see them as fundamentally human. In, and, and when it comes to the sort of um, access to these rights, there there is no reason basis to be to de denying it to people simply on the basis of what they believe, right? Yeah, I mean, it's cool that um, Thomas Jefferson is somebody who was really, you know, interested in law and it makes sense that as a thinker, he would get the Quran and he would, especially with uh, the sort of powerful position of Muslims in the world at that time, that he would try to sort of parse through that. But I also just think it just says something about just philosophically the sturdiness, right, of, of what that founding vision was. And, and something that I think that has really withstood time. You know, we're in a drastically different society now, and yet many of those principles, and granted, those principles were tested time and again throughout American history, uh, with the treatment of Native American and Native American religion, the treatment of Mormons, the treatment of Catholics, the treatment of Jews, basically. It was like, you know, they thought it was religious freedom. Religious freedom just meant diverse Protestant sects. But in fact, it means something that's not Protestant, you know, and so there was this wrestling, there was lots of bloodshed. Um, but each time the American conception of religious freedom grew broader and broader, but ultimately in honesty to the original ideal, right? Um, because remember, the original ideal was articulated not just as, a pro as, as diversity among Protestants, it was, it was specifically, explicitly articulated as extending to Jews and to, um, to Muslims and so on. And so over time, we have found that vision, but unfortunately, you know, we're, we're seeing challenges to it again. It's like we're repeating aspects of history. And I'm just like, that's another thing I, I mentioned in the book. Like, we've done this, we've been here, like a lot of these arguments are actually really familiar and they're kind of old. <laughs> so 